well 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 i'm live again um this is only my second time that i've really done a live stream so i'm gonna try to talk slowly a little bit i'll sometimes have to stumble over my tongue since i'm dutch trying to speak english i can do it pretty well but i'm not a native speaker so uh i have prepared some notes on my screen on my laptop and so i'll be uh looking back and forth between the camera and my notes to uh, get the show going a little bit <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so i hope everybody can hear me i uh i want to talk about geopolitics and the empire and specifically about what is all going on in the world that relates to uh, the future of the european peoples and their colonial offshoots of course uh, Europeans have uh, an offshoot in South Africa, the Afrikaner population, and some English-speaking people as well. We also have uh, Australia and New Zealand. That seems to be a sort of a, almost by design, a faraway outpost. If, you're, if you imagine the world a, a sort of chessboard, Australia and New Zealand are the pawns uh, pushed forward to try to capture China at some point. Um, that's all very long-term thinking, and uh, our globalist elites, they do that. They, they think ahead for, uh, say, a thousand years or so or more uh, to try to win the world. And in our time, we are living with the, uh, the outcome of a struggle between uh, the British Empire, which now is called the Anglo-American Empire or the English-speaking empire, the Five Eyes Empire. Uh, but... Uh, so they kind of defeated the Soviet Union by the late 1980s or 1990s. The, the economy collapsed of the Soviet Union quit, right? The Berlin Wall fell. Um, and ever since, Germany has been under occupation by Americans, really. Uh, Western Europe is part of the U.S. empire. We never say that. You never hear that on TV. With, we still think that we have our own little countries like uh, the Netherlands and Belgium and uh, Germany and Italy and so on now unified under the European Union. Uh, but the, the European Union itself was co-founded with the U.S. State Department and the American Secret Services, the CIA, for example. They funded a lot of the EU in Brussels to get it going. So it's really part, Western Europe is really part of the U.S. empire, does its bidding. The Western European market is very well developed. We have a high-tech society, right? Um, so you can sell uh, goods and services to Europe. This is why, after all, in Europe we have Facebook, an American invention. We have uh, uh, Twitter, an American invention. We have, uh, and so on and so forth. Right? We have all the American tech that is really used to survey us, but also to capture us, to uh, read our personal messages, and to figure out, um, you know, what is the state of Europe really, so that uh, the leadership in the U.S. can kind of control us a bit better. Um, so, however, this current configuration between basically Western Europe with the USA and the English-speaking colonies, South Africa included, and so on, uh, they really, uh, this, this is one form of an empire, but there are other possibilities. Who might win the world, for example? Uh, it could be China. China and its satellites and its allies. China is now in an alliances with Iran with Russia, could they perhaps take over from the U.S.? And that is the biggest threat. You see, sorry, 
during the colonial age, uh, during the colonial age, um, the Western powers were able to capture almost the whole world, all, all of the key territories, uh, Africa, for example, the Arab world, India, right, uh, Latin America, everything was colonized or captured, except for uh, China. China couldn't be uh, subdued. China couldn't be captured. China, China, therefore, in the eyes of the Western powers, is an anomaly, something strange. They don't quite understand it. How is it possible that such a large population living in that basin, really, because Western China is sparsely populated. Most Chinese people live in the east of the country, eastern part of the country. Um, they, they have a rice-based or grain-based culture uh, where irrigation is, uh, is most important. Right? This is very different from the Western world, which, which was always pastoralist. Northern Europe, Northwestern Europe, is, these are pastoralist territories where you, um, you weren't so much bound by water and waterways since it would rain everywhere anyway. Uh, uh, you had more, more of a sense of freedom. You could settle where you wanted. There would be water there, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, good evening. I see the first uh, viewers are starting to interact. I'll answer your questions now and then. Uh, I'm first going to first. I'm going to try to get through some of my uh, my thought processes here, and then I'll uh, I'll interact more with the with the viewers. So I was talking about the different configurations of empires you might have. So we have the Anglo-American sphere. You might have uh, Russia with China, but you might also have Russia with Germany. Um, the territory, say from all the way from Ireland. Northern Europe included, Italy included, all the way to the Ural Mountains, that Northwest Eurasian territory, also including Scandinavia. Uh, that is what uh, the Germans were trying to capture during the 1930s and 40s. The idea was you could create a massive Christian empire uh, from, from Gibraltar all the way to the Ural Mountains. And if they had succeeded in doing that, they would have established an empire potentially more powerful than the U.S. empire today, meaning uh, we would have been living in a German-dominated world ruled from Berlin rather than in an English-dominated world ruled from Washington. So because the Germans were defeated at uh, St. Petersburg, right, Stalingrad, 1942, the retreat began, they were pushed back. The Soviet Red Army eventually beat the Germans. And you know why? It's because the Russians were able, the Russian industry was able to produce more weapons. Uh, in the end, uh, weapons dominance, just rifles and bullets and bombs. That was really why the Russians beat the Germans in the end. The German economy just couldn't really do it. Uh, they ran out of resources. And so if that's what it comes, comes down to, the, the present conflict between Ukraine and Russia, obviously Russia was going to win it. Russia, Russia, in fact, did capture the eastern uh, territories of Ukraine. But Russia also, with the support of China, has an almost infinite um, military production capacity. They can produce way more bombs and drones and, 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 and tanks and so on, perhaps not of the same level of quality or advancedness as the, what uh, what American military industry can produce, but certainly still uh, still in greater quantities, and perhaps quantity is what matters in, in times of war. Yeah, I know Russia won the one World War II because they defeated they defeated the the Germans were trying to capture the Slavic lands and repopulate them with Germans. It was called uh, Generalplan Ost, the uh, the Eastern Settle Settle Plan. Uh, so 
we are living in a world where we have uh, conflicts of empires between is it going to be the, the US Anglosphere, is it going to be Germany with Russia or Russia with China, or uh, there's another, another strange thing going on here, is France's secret Francophonic empire. France, through some uh, financial means, still controls a large part of North and Western Africa, the French-speaking part. This is a predominantly Muslim part, so, but I'm going to speak more about that in a minute. Uh, I want to clarify up front that uh, when I uh, speak of alliances between, for example, Europe and the USA or Europe and Russia, I don't mean the present state of the borders. For example, I know that in Russia and southern Russia and so on, there's a lot of Islamic peoples living there. But also in the USA today, if you look at um, the ethnic makeup, the white people really only live in the countryside of the northern part of the USA, central and northern parts, because in the southeast you have a large African-American population. And in the, uh, the southwest you have an increasingly large Hispanic population. In terms of new births, the United States is already three nations. Ethnically speaking, you have a white USA in the central north, you have a Hispanic USA in the southwest, and you have a, an African USA in the southeast. Might these someday fall apart into three different nations? Perhaps if the United States empire collapses, you're going to see the birth of just new separate nations there. The whole thing will fall apart and reconfigure itself along uh, ethnic lines, obviously. But I, so when I speak of uh, the USA alliance with Europe, I mean really the white Europeans and the white Anglo-Saxon or Germanic type Americans. And the same with Russia, a possible alliance between say Northern Europe and Russia would be an alliance with uh, about a hundred million or so white Russians living in Northwestern Russia. So that's because when you start new alliances, of course you can change the borders. You can redraw the borders on a map and, and, and do it differently. You're not really tied to the, to the legacy of the past. You know, people can draw borders all they want, but we're going to work with people and not with abstract concepts such as nations, right? So that's the difference between uh, state nationalism or ethno-nationalism. I obviously favor ethno-nationalism. And to me today, it's clear that the United States leadership has been taken over slowly, gradually by what I call the Bolsheviki, the Bolsheviks, communists, and their Black Panther uh, allies. Uh, who's really in charge of the USA today? Is it Joe Biden? No. Uh, someone very smart told me that it, uh, you're living in the Obama's third presidency. So they did steal the election because Obama is, your, is the real president of the USA today. And Obama is a Black Panther communist. He's a Marxist. And what are they doing? You can see very clearly under the Biden administration, they are increasingly, slowly, gradually, but also relentlessly pushing for new laws and measures and regulations that basically slowly strip the white middle class of its savings and its wealth and its property and slowly transfer it, redistribute it, mostly to black people, not even to Hispanics, but mostly to black people, to the African-Americans who are the, the chief beneficiaries of all the tax programs and of all, the, basically wh white people living in the USA, they pick up the tab 
and everybody else benefits. But this is deliberate. It's not by accident. It's because there is no white guy in the White House. Uh, the USA Today is being ruled by Black Panthers. They took over with the help of the Bolsheviks, obviously. Now, why would they want this? Why are the Bolsheviks betting on Africans becoming a dominant population in the USA? And that is because um, the African population today is set to balloon from 1.3 billion people today to 2.5 billion people by the end of this century. And so they're going to mass, mass migrate hundreds of millions, perhaps even over a billion people into Europe and into, um, into the USA, M making them, uh, Europe will become Africanized. You have an Africanized USA or an Africanized North Africa, really, Canada as well, obviously. You'll have the African Africa, and those three big continents together will then form a giant African empire. That's what they're betting on because they need that in order to continue to isolate China. Because China, since China didn't have a colonial legacy, China is still welcomed with open arms by African leaders in Africa. So China is still China is doing a lot of colonialism in Africa, but they just don't call it that. They don't call it colonialism because it's more based on cooperation. And it is. The Chinese are doing it well. They cooperate with the locals, but the Chinese obviously outsmart the locals and so they greatly benefit from this cooperation right uh and so the u.s leadership uh is in the works they're they're trying to uh rob the white middle class blind transfer all the wealth to the africans and use that wealth also to invest in africa to create these uh, to create a to create a Africanized U.S. empire, which they hope will then be able to beat China, also because there's simply not enough European-type men left in the world to win a war against China, which may cost hundreds of millions of casualties if you want to do that war. So they're going to need black soldiers to do the dying for the empire. So, however, all of this gives us Europeans an opportunity an opportunity to get out, to cut loose. We don't have to listen to an Africanized USA, and we don't have to tolerate mass immigration from South Asia and Africa and North Africa into, into Europe. We can draw the line somewhere, and in my imagination, that line will be drawn along the Rhine and Danube rivers. North of the Rhine and Danube will be ours. Uh, we will have to ally with Poland. We will have to ally with perhaps the white Russians to pull it off. I'm going to talk more about this kind of alliance, but uh, again, when I speak of such an alliance, I don't mean we're going to ally with the, with the Islamic crowd that is part of Russia. We're going to do everything differently. We're going to redraw the borders, right? So uh, just to be clear, any alliance between Europe and Russia will be mostly an alliance between the German industry and Russia. However, something interesting has been happening uh, because the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up, which severely crippled the German industry. Now they're investing in Poland. They're going to make Poland the new nuclear power in Europe with nuclear power plants. I mean, uh, they will have a lot of electricity there, a lot of uh, energy to build industry. But again, uh, that's a bit of a problem. If you once you have a very powerful Poland, the Polish leadership might simply switch allegiance 
from NATO to Russia. And then what will happen? What will happen if Poland decides to decide once Poland has been built up by the Americans? It may all be a one giant scam. You don't know how this works. And, and, and you might think that, well, Polish people hate Russians very much. Yes, but Polish people aren't in charge. The elite leadership of Poland is in charge, right? They make different decisions and then they'll simply tell you on the evening news what they've decided and what you'll have to go, go along with. But if Poland were to switch sides with Russia, Poland will have the power not only to capture Eastern Germany, but all of Germany and a larger part of Western Europe as well. In fact, what we call Western Europe may simply cease to exist. Uh, well, I'll talk more about that in a minute. So I've been trying to wrap my head around what exactly this war between East and West is really about. It is, in, in fact, a war between the patriarchy and the matriarchy. Now, Europeans have long been domesticated for about 800 years or so. The, the real European patriarchy from before chivalric knights, when men were true warriors, you know, in the age of the Spartans and the Vikings. This age is long gone. Europeans uh, adopted Christianity, which taught them how to behave. Uh, also, heathen beliefs were slowly adapted by the Catholics, by the Roman Catholic, Catholic missionaries who slowly introduced, you know, who slowly tried to civilize men. Uh, to make them behave. Uh, this has been going on for about 800 years, so it's not really fair to still speak of a European patriarchy. It has been heavily feminized. A feminized patriarchy isn't really a patriarchy anymore. But there are some, some main principles that emerge from the patriarchy, the, the idea of freedom that we always talk about in the West. Freedom. It comes from this idea that you can settle wherever you want, live your own life without the need to be governed by a large state or by, by, by a king or even an emperor. I know that the early uh, settlers of Iceland came from Norway. They were trying to escape uh, the first king because the first king of Norway in the 10th century, or oh, no, 8th century, 9th century, whatever, he, he started taxing the locals and they didn't want to be taxed. So they left to Iceland. And Iceland then became literally the first democracy because what happens without, without rulers telling you what to do? You form uh, democracies. They had the first parliament in Europe, for example. So, so, so the battle is really between patriarchy and matriarchy, whereby the ideas, uh, the Western leadership is matriarchal. They are doing whatever they can to destroy the Western remnants of the Western patriarchy or the remnants of European patriarchy, because they want to have a, a single global matriarchal system ruled by women behind the scenes probably because they'll probably allow men to become presidents and so on right but they will the women will rule behind the scenes and basically all of humanity will become a domesticated species governed by whoever you know can't say it out loud but this is a very strange people who seem to be who seem to be able to separate themselves from the rest of humanity i assume they must be extreme narcissists and psychopaths uh, so that they look down on other people to such an extent that they really perceive the rest of us as cattle to domesticate us. And so patriarchal people are less domesticable. It's harder to domesticate them because they don't need governors. They don't need to be told what to do. Uh, so, uh, so these globalists who want to capture the world, they see... China as a roadblock, China won't budge, China won't submit to the Western way, to the rules-based order, as they always call it. And there's a bit of a reason for it, is that there's a, this connection with pastoralism, uh, 
so China, okay, I have to explain it differently. China is what is called a hydraulic civilization. They, they are grain-based and rice-based people. They eat a lot more grains than we do in the West. We eat a lot more, a lot more meat. I think the difference is like Western people eat at least five times as much meat as the Chinese people do. And so what's going on here is that China has traditionally always had a higher level uh, government system to govern the waterways, to govern the equal distribution of water. Uh, and people thereby, by extension, were forced to submit to the emperor, for example, or to the Chinese state system because the Chinese top powers were literally able to cut off water flows from one place to another, thereby starving millions of people simply at will. This was not possible in the Western world because of the rainfall and we have more rivers in Europe, for example, Western Europe. Uh, you can't really control people with water. People were in Europe for a long time have been pastoralists. They have their own cattle, which provides them with milk and meat and dairy and yogurt. So they had they could produce their own food. And this this independence from uh, from government made it so hard to control the Europeans. To give you an example, in the feudal age, uh, Europe had some standing armies. The feudal kings had, had armies, but they were relatively small. These were professional armies with, say, 8,000 soldiers or so, and not that much more. Whereas China, because China had so much more control over its population, the Chinese leadership was able to uh, mobilize millions of soldiers, but these were salaried soldiers. They were basically ordered to fight and therefore they weren't that motivated. Their main profession was to be a peasant. They were not trained in combat. Europe, on the other hand, had professional armies with uh, full-time dedicated warriors who were willing to die for a greater cause, right? So the pastoralist connection then is this. Uh, Pastoralism allows you as an individual to have a freer life. But pastoralism also means the following. Uh, if, you, if you have a lot of cattle, you'll notice that the ones that produce milk are the females. So you keep those alive to feed you the milk. You don't need as many bulls. So um, male calves and bulls and so on, they are killed off for meat. That is still true today. If you uh, take a train past a meadow, meadow and you see some cows outside uh, most of them are female because they are the ones who produce milk uh, the calves and so on, the male calves are, are, are butchered they are, they are turned into hamburgers and so imagine you're a male farmer you rule over your herd of female animals you have your wife and kid but in a pastoralist society you see, cattle can be stolen easily. Cattle has legs. They can walk away and they can be stolen at night when you're sleeping, for example. To prevent theft of your private property, this is where private property comes from, by the way. It comes from owning your own cattle, right? And to prevent your private property from being stolen by thieves, the fathers, his brothers, cousins, and his sons, they would form male alliances to defend their pastures, their territory, and to defend... Um, foreigners and invaders from taking their cattle. So you see that everything that the Western world is based upon is based upon the idea of pastoralism. And, and why, why is this a problem? Well, feminists don't like that. They don't like the idea of men being in charge of the females, basically, of the female cattle and of the women and of the daughters as well. They don't like that situation. So there's a reason why the vegan movement, which is also a Marxist movement, is so heavily attacking 
uh, 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 eating meat because eating meat comes from pastoralism. If you, would, if you would be able to destroy the meat market, you would do away with pastoralism. You would do away with all these cultural perks, perks that come with having a pastoralist society, like freedom, men are in charge, male menerbunde, uh, male alliances to defend the territory, our land, our borders. So, so the, the people in charge of the West today are not these type of people. They're not pastoralists. They are matriarchal Middle Easterners. They're very different people who rule over us, and they hate borders and territory and men ruling the women. They hate it so much, they are trying to sabotage it from within. Now, this explains finally why our globalist leaders in the West, perhaps uh, at least, why they like to see mass immigration from India, mass immigration from from uh, Africa and so on, because the largest group of patriarchal pastoralist peoples happens to be the Northwest Europeans or by extension, the Europeans. Uh, we traditionally for thousands of years have been living off of meat and milk. And by mass immigration, by mass immigrating uh, people from parts of the world that have always been matriarchal, such as Central Africa, Northern Africa, India, and China, by mass immigrating, immigrating all these people into the Western world, you will eventually destroy the patriarchy and destroy pastoralism, basically the end of white men. So bands of, brother, bands of brothers and cousins band together to defend the cattle, and that's where private property comes from. Um, and so what happened what happened how did how did these matriarchal elites take over from the patriarchal warrior cult that existed even in the late 19th century europe was ruled by a warrior caste a native germanic celtic roman warrior caste right what happened how, how, well what happened was they became too successful they had too many children and they had to move their children to the cities and as the cities start growing larger and larger and larger where you you have to imagine the early cities in Europe were full of young people, children, under 18 year olds. They were ruled by a small group of older people, right? Because there were too many children. So you dump your children in the cities and very quickly, what do you get? You get a very easily domesticable population that needs to be educated by the state. <clears throat> okay, let me take a sip. So early urbanization leads there to be large populations of young people, children who need to be educated, but their parents, their parents are living in the countryside. Their parents can't raise these children, so they have to be raised by the state. And that's where it all comes from, really. Urban elites and their educable or domesticable young populations, uh, they took over simply due to their number. Right. And that's where, why democracy favors urban populations, because they are the majority. I think in Western Europe now, 70 or 80 percent of the people are living in cities. It's just uh, the people living outside in the suburbs or even in the countryside is a smaller and smaller and smaller number. There was a time in the Netherlands, for example, when half of the people were still farmers just 200 years ago. Today, I think there's just 20,000 or 50,000 farms left in the Netherlands. So their numbers are dwindling. Their numbers are dwindling because, well, they can produce children all they want, but the children will have to get a job in the city. And so they their children become part of the urban leftist liberal, right? The edicable, governable system. Uh, and that's how it went wrong. The whole, the whole thing, 
that happened was the transition of power from um, rural religious people toward urban science educated people uh, okay I'm gonna take a little break to see if I can answer some questions or uh, oh is my screen frozen I don't know didn't see it either I'm trying to fix the the screen. I don't know what's going on here. Delete. Sorry guys, I have a technical problem here. I didn't expect uh, the the camera to freeze. I don't know why that happened. Uh, let me see. Go over here. Add. Uh, stretch it is under. Okay. Okay, I'm moving. I hope I wasn't offline for too long, but anyway. Uh, I'm going to play a video for a moment, and then I can, while the video is playing, I'm going to be answering some questions from the, from, the, from the rest of it. So let me do it this way. Hey, this is Johannes Taranis speaking to you. And in this video, I want to go over a thought experiment about a hypothetical future. You're watching drone footage that I shot over Sweden to show you what that country mostly looks like. Apart from the three main urban centers, Stockholm, Gothenburg, and Malmö, Sweden is largely a pine tree forest littered with lakes. In fact, Sweden has the most number of lakes of any country in Europe. Sweden isn't the only place like this. Indeed, much of Norway and much of Finland and Northwest Russia are also like that. These territories are woodlands and sparsely populated at that. Moreover, this massive woodland of Northwest Eurasia is about the size of the rest of Europe. That means if temperatures were to rise just a little, just a few degrees Celsius on average, these undeveloped forest lands could provide the perfect fertile soil for doing agriculture or pastoralism someday. In a warmer climate, these lands could feed tens of millions, if not a hundred million Europeans seeking refuge from the multicultural dystopia presently unfolding in our cities further south. Why do I care? Why does this matter to me? Well, in another video, I had discussed what might happen if climate change were to lead to a drop in temperatures. If Europe were to freeze over, in that case, at least 100 million Europeans would have to leave the continent. The cost of fuel and clothing would rise exponentially, basic households would default on their heating costs, and our migrant friends from the tropics and the deserts might find Europe too cold to inhabit and avoid coming here altogether. But we can't predict the future. It's best to prepare for several logical outcomes. What should we do, for example, if climate alarmists turn out to be right and the temperatures in Europe do start to rise rapidly? Personally, I haven't quite bought into the rising temperature scare peddled by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
though it seems that the IPCC and the World Economic Forum prefer this scenario and they may be working in secret to make it happen rather than to having to wait for it. If rising temperatures were to hit Europe, by that time many parts of northern Africa and the Arab Peninsula will already have become too hot to inhabit. The present Islamic crescent surrounding the European continent may turn into a scorched earth, and hundreds of millions of desert peoples will pursue passage to Europe. They have nowhere else to go. This would be the nightmare scenario for us. A nation like France, for example, could see a majority African population by the year 2040. At the same time, France's native population will still be failing to raise families. Their numbers will dwindle, and such a minority fate may hit all of West Europeans. Where does that leave us? Our cities could be overflowing with migrants, and arguably many already have. Southern Europe, or anything south of the rivers Rhine and Danube, could become indistinguishable from Central Africa, whereas Northern Europe will be flooded by Turkic and Arab peoples. All of Europe, then, becomes Islamic barring a few rural Christian enclaves here and there, staking out the apocalypse. Should we do nothing and wait for better times ahead, as our peoples wither away in urban ghettos and rural shanty towns, disowned, unhappy, and stripped of political power? Something like this has happened before, and we should learn from the ordeal. When the Soviet communists decided to disown the kulaks, a class of farmers who managed to employ a small number of helping hands, many of these Kulak families were then banished and sent to live in the Siberian woodlands, often without any possessions whatsoever but the clothes they were wearing. They were sent to die there, though that's not what happened. Not only did many banished groups of Kulaks survive in what was supposed to be nature's death row, some new settlements even thrived. That means there is a way out for us if demographic catastrophe were to hit us. In case of a massive replacement of Europeans with immigrants coming from Arab and African nations, rising temperatures will change the equation in our benefit. For if temperatures rise, might we relocate our peoples to the yet unpopulated woodlands of northwestern Eurasia? I understand it sounds borderline ludicrous for white Europeans to ask Russia, Sweden, and Finland for asylum in their forests, and it won't have to happen anytime soon. In the worst-case scenario, however, this may be the best option left for Europeans, namely to pursue our strategic relocation. We should only do this, of course, as a strategy of last resorts, only if every other attempt at defending our homelands has already failed. After all, we need to know what to do if catastrophe hits. We need to know our options, and the woodlands of northwest Eurasia offer us such an alternative future. Imagine, for example, that our communist traitors, who are already in charge of our economies and of our banking systems, decide to rob the white middle class's pension funds. And then, will they also rob our savings accounts for the sake of equality? Own nothing and be happy. To our enemies, perhaps we are the cash cows, the treasure chest used to fund the communist utopia. They will use the West's pension monies to finalize our great replacement as the alleged repayment for the colonial age, resulting in the Islamization of Europe, the legalization of child marriages, 
the segregation of men and women in public spaces, all the while still pushing for the LGBT circus. Western elites will go along with it because it means they get to buy a new market of 2 to 3 billion young people still looking to get their latest iPhones. And as I said, it seems that the World Economic Forum is also betting on this scenario, meaning communists may be planning to take away our savings, disown us, and drive us into camps to die. European people who still love freedom will then have to abandon ship. Rising temperatures would make the woodlands of northwestern Eurasia habitable. It will be possible for us to clear sections of the forest to grow crops or to create pastures for cattle. And the fertile lands should be able to sustain a population on the level of the mid-19th century, which means this vast woodland could comfortably feed and house up to 50 million northern Europeans using wood as fuels and horses as the means of transportation. In the long run, we may even witness a revival of our civilization. In the short term, however, arriving in a territory previously unpopulated, on lands never developed before, and without any pre-existing infrastructure, we will be thrown back to the times of the early settlers of Europe. But we will also bring with us the knowledge, the tools, and the skills of the modern age to give ourselves a head start. I want to stress that I personally hope this scenario does not play out. I hope that Europe's temperatures will rather drop and so naturally curb any further immigration from the Islamic and African regions into Europe. Still, it's useful for us to imagine what we might have to do if climate changes for the worse. We know that we could strategically relocate a fairly large number of our peoples further north, especially young people and families willing to brave the adventure. Whatever happens, I'm sure not only many of us will survive, some of us will thrive and found new nations. All right, sorry, you just watched a clip where I uh, discussed the potential for um, for strategic relocation. Somebody says it sounds like fleeing, but what are you going to do when uh, literally a billion Africans are going to come into Europe? Uh, you want to live with them? You want to be like a 1% white minority in Paris or Brussels or Amsterdam or Berlin or wherever? You know, it doesn't sound like fun to me. So you got to open up your eyes and see where are new possibilities someone <clears throat> sorry pardon me someone mentioned in the comments already uh when the temperatures rise they're thinking of uh what re-greening re the sahara desert i don't know if that will work but uh what if the temperatures do actually rise alaska will become habitable north northwestern canada becomes habitable Antarctica becomes habitable, Siberia, Greenland, the inland of Greenland. All these territories are several times the size, together they are several times the size of Europe. That's a massive opportunity. And especially in the northern regions, uh, the Arctic regions or sub-Arctic regions, they would be perfect for pastoralism. You will have massive, massive pastures where you can send in new cattle. People could literally settle there 
and live off cattle. They would have milk, meat, leather. They will have, uh, these are woodlands, so they'll have wood to make homes, to build homes and new infrastructure. You say, okay, it is it going to be that primitive though? Do you have a choice really? You can either lose yourself in diversity or just start over with your own new homeland, a new ethno nation. And um, so I am looking at, you know, the Northwest Eurasian woodlands that's still uh, Scandinavia included, for example. Scandinavia, too, is very sparsely populated, really. Norway and Sweden, they both have maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten million people living there in a territory that is the size of the rest of Western Europe. So it's huge. Uh, but apparently it's difficult to live there, right? Because it's cold. And uh, so if you want to have um, a, a new homeland for Europeans, where would it be? Well, it would be in the further north in the subarctic Arctic region of northwestern Europe. Uh, and through the same slow process over the next 50 years or so, you would have to start migrating your people there. Uh, you will have uh, colonists like early settlers who will have to, you know, literally cut down the trees to create to create pastures. Um, build the first roads and so on, turn the swamps into civilization again, as we've always done. I don't see a real problem in that. The, the alternative would be you would have to defend Europe, but you can't even defend all of Europe. You will have to accept that in any war between Europe and Africa, you're going to lose all, all of Southern Europe. It's just gone. Uh, Italy, Spain, Greece will be flooded with people from India, the Islamic world and Africa. There's nothing to do about it. That's just gone. What might you defend them? You might defend, like I said, Scandinavia, uh, Poland, uh, Eastern Germany, probably Western Germany will be lost to mass immigration. The Netherlands, Belgium will be lost. France is a special case because France actually controls 14 African nations in Northwestern Africa. Uh, and I'll talk, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, France is going to turn into a, uh, into a pitch black African nation in the heart of Europe. France is gone. Uh, Britain will be flooded with immigrants from India and Pakistan due to their colonial, colonial heritage. That is also because, the, you know, the Indian speak, the people, they speak English, right? They already speak English with a thick accent, but they'll, like me, but they'll, that's why they can go there. The same with France. Uh, due to the colonial leg legacy, so many people in France, uh, in Africa, speak French or English. And so they can go to America and they can go to England and they can go to France. Very, very few Africans speak German, very, almost no Africans speak a Slavic language. So these territories, that's why I'm thinking Poland, Eastern Germany, you know, maybe Hungary and uh, like maybe Austria, maybe those kinds of countries might be able to defend themselves, but you would have to defend them in a war. Okay, there's going to be a massive war effort against migrants. That means you're going to have to lose your cities, cut the cities out. Berlin will be gone. You'll have to basically bomb Berlin and Amsterdam and so on. You'd, you'd have to bomb these places back to the Bronze Age. So, but still, there's the dream to have a new homeland for our people somewhere from, say, Ireland, maybe Scotland can be part of it, you know, Iceland, Scandinavia, all the way to the Ural Mountains, northwestern Russia included. This is where we would have to retreat and then defend that territory, which will require, you know, a war effort. You need males willing to fight. If you don't have males willing to fight, it's over. But when, when you choose to fight, you can't fight the way that Ukraine has been fighting Russia. I need a sip.
because I don't know what the exact numbers are. <clears throat> uh, NATO says maybe 200,000 Ukrainians were killed or maimed in that war now. Same on the Russian side. It could be half a million on either side or, or more. That's such an incredible waste of life where you suspect that that's what it was about. It was about throwing white men into a meat grinder and just killing us off or like uh, senselessly for no fucking reason. Other than to when you get rid of us, you can replace us with, with immigrants and basically uh, complete the Kalergi plan and kill us off. So, you know, the painter, you know, the leader, the leader of the Germans, why did he fail? He marched on to Stalingrad, St. Petersburg. The idea was, like, wh why did he go there and not to Moscow? Some of his generals actually told him, you should go to Moscow, take Moscow first. No, no, no. Um, the painter insisted on taking St. Petersburg. And my theory is that St. Petersburg or Stalingrad used to be the seat of the Tsar, the seat of religious power. So had the Germans captured Stalingrad, they would have been able to revive Christianity. In fact, that's what they were doing. As Germans were capturing more and more land eastward, they were rebuilding Christianity there. They were bringing back Catholicism. Uh, the locals... The Slavic locals who had been living under uh, uh, atheism, Soviet communist atheism for so long, they welcomed Christianity back. And now, interestingly, of course, today Russia has embraced its Orthodox religion again, but in a more, they are, they're doing it more in a Eurasianist sense now, where they are also kind of fusing with their version of Islam over there, right? So it's all a bit strange. Okay, I see a lot of comments coming in. I'm going to try to answer your your comments more uh, in a bit. Uh, so I think what the Yahtzee leadership was doing, they were trying to build a Christian empire out of Europe and Western Russia together. Had they succeeded, they would have built an empire so powerful. Today, the world would be speaking German and not English. But we wouldn't have had diversity. We wouldn't have had, you know, Mass immigration, LGBT, all that stuff probably wouldn't have existed. So it's either or. That's why we always say, you know, I'm glad we're not speaking German, right? So I was going to talk about France's secret empire. France, through some uh, financial trickery, controls the economies of 14 African nations. Most of them are in northwest of Africa, such as, I can't name them all, like Morocco, Algeria, others. Niger. There was an upheaval in Niger uh, because that's one of the colonies of France and the Russians through their Wagner mercenaries were able to overthrow the leadership there. Basically NATO uh, and France, the French Empire was in retreat there. But we don't normally speak of the French Empire. This is all hushed up because France is part of the EU officially. The EU is kind of the slave of the USA, right? And so we ne in, in Western media, you never hear about this. I think Georgia Maloney of Italy did mention it on TV once that she also mentioned that while well, France has this secret empire. Uh, the thing is that although these colonial uh, subordinates, really, these African subordinates to France, they speak mostly French, right? So they can move to France and speak French there, but... Uh, they are Muslim. Most of them are Muslim. And I think this is the real reason why sometime around 1970, 1975, the European Union decided that we needed to start fusing uh, Islam with Christianity. The Pope, Pope Francis, was recently in France 
in, at an event where also uh, Macron attended, uh, President Macron of France, uh, a real sick guy, I think. But anyway, and the Pope said, we don't have an immigration problem. Of course not. The Pope wants Europe to be flooded with Africans, especially these French-speaking Muslim Africans yeah, who are already used to living under the French rule. All right, so they will be more used to living under the European rule in Brussels. And like I said, what will happen is France will become a dark country. France will become basically an African country in Europe. You know, the way, uh, how would you compare this? You could compare it to an actual white colony, say, uh, you know, you can't even compare it with South Africa. It's, it's different from it. It's, it's imagine you would go to the heart of, of China and start a white country there with 100 million white people right in the heart of China. That's what this is. You know, that's how bizarre it is, but that's what they're doing. So through this French connection with the Islamic French-speaking Africans, uh, the European Union is literally trying to fuse Europe, Christian Europe, with this Islamic uh, Francophonic Africa to try to get this part of Africa away from China. You see Chinese influence and Russian influence in the region is so strong. NATO, the European Union, the USA, they need to hold on to their power base. They need to hold on to their resources because they still need those resources to be in power, right? So it's all about a competition between the West and China where they just try to uh, buy the Africans in, basically, try to seduce the West Africans, the Northwest Africans as well, into becoming a part of the European Union and becoming a part of the Western world, buy Nike, drink Starbucks coffee, basically. Uh, if the Africans were to decide, as you know, if the continental Africans were to decide to give the West a finger and side with Russia and China, boom, it's over. Then basically China has won the war, USA is defeated, uh, and there's nothing to do about it. But like I said, in this conflict, you know, when two dogs are fighting, there's an opportunity for a third to run off with the bone. That third party would be Northern Europe with Poland, and perhaps in an alliance of sorts or a partnership of sorts, with uh, the white Russians of Western Russia. That will be a third party that might be able to uh, secede from globalism. That's my dream. I'm, I'm thinking of where in the world would we establish a new homeland for patriarchal, pastoralist-type white people who like to drink milk and eat meat, right, and who like to believe in God, Right, who want to have their Männerbünde, their male alliances, to defend their territory. Where would you have it? Well, that would be northwestern Eurasia. Uh, and the border would be, again, between Germany and France. The Rhine, basically. Uh, Germany has often been at war with France, probably for similar reasons as today. The French are a bunch of degenerates, right? They're allowing this mass immigration of Africans into the country, turning France into a black country. You know, no matter what, what they say about, say, Le Pen or uh, these other right-wingers in France, I think it's all controlled opposition. I think Maloney is controlled opposition. The globalist elites are not going to allow people to vote themselves out of this nightmare. You're going to have to uh, realize it's all been scripted. It's all over. All you can do is find a way out by motivating enough men willing to fight to defend the new territory. Now, what about the USA? Do you think that the white middle class in the USA can continue to survive? I doubt it. 
the Black Panthers and their Bolshevik friends have already taken over. You are literally living, living in a country with Obama's third term, which is illegal, but they're doing it anyway behind the scenes because they have their, uh, their puppet Biden in the White House, right? And so that's so bizarre is that at this point, what should be happening is the white middle class in the USA, they are still armed, right? They've got rifles and AR-15s and whatnot. You know, I'm not allowed to... Uh, incite an armed revolt but you know an armed revolt is what you would need so i'm not inciting it i'm just saying that's what you would need but you would need to do it now and not tomorrow you know there's just no leadership and then they come up with this oliver anthony i think i fell for it for a bit i really liked his music but you know what i think now in hindsight i think he's one of them i think because he's on joe rogan he's on all these he's on jordan peterson right i think oh no they captured him already he's just Either he was always one of them or they already captured him because I don't know if you know this, but Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, they're not on the side of the armed revolt. All right. So Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Oliver Anthony, all these people are there to kind of pacify us. They kind of tell us, oh, you got to be dangerous, but then don't be dangerous. Right. Be dangerous, but behave. All right. OK, that's not me. Uh, I would say be dangerous and be dangerous. Right. Show him, show the world and capture a new territory where might you do this in the usa well well you know if the temperatures are rising you might capture uh, uh western canada and alaska that might, might become available available to pastoralism you might survive there but i don't see it happening either the u.s empire collapses and the white americans form their own nation which will be, will be separate but you're going to have to give up a lot of territory you're going to lose the southwest you're going to lose the southeast right you're going to lose a lot of territory and I wonder if it will be possible. Uh, I do welcome all European type Americans back home to Europe. But again, you can't you can't expect an easy life here either. In the end, there's going to be a massive total total uprising or, or basically a, a war for our survival. And I think. Yeah, that's so that's why I'm speculating or I'm I'm playing with the idea of might the North Europeans and the Slavic peoples and the, the Northwest, the white Russians, might we work together to secure our last white homeland here, right? right? I don't know if it will be possible, right? Because the European Union definitely wants to fuse Christianity with Islam and Europe with Africa, at least North Africa and Central Africa, probably all of Africa, to create a Euro-African empire and they're trying to do that they're thinking but the euro wait the euro african empire would not be led by europeans it won't be led by africans it will be led by the same leadership in charge of the usa today the bolshevik right and the black panthers the marxists are in charge and i think there is opportunity for us to have new homelands multiple new homelands uh but you're going to have to sacrifice a lot you're going to have to accept that left-wing white people for example are you going to try to save them of course not they betrayed us they are the, they're the reason why we're in this situation uh, and then you have on the right side a lot of people who aren't willing to fight you can't save them either really only the people willing to fight for their survival are going to have any chance at survival and that basically just means that uh, you're going to accept 80 percent losses right off the bat before you even start any kind of struggle you're going to have to accept 80% of our people are just gone. You can't save them. You can't take them with you. 
because if you try to save them, you will succumb. So you can't save them. You can only save yourself. Right? This, I, I, I roughly estimate 20% of Europeans men might actually be willing to fight for a future. And it is from those men that that new future will be built. No one else can do it, really. Uh, so this brings me to several topics. I want to go through uh, all sorts of uh, little territories and just try to imagine what can be done with it or what might be the future of it. Uh, I think maybe I'll answer some questions or, you know, if I see some people over here. Uh, there's been some quite some comments going on here. Greeting from Hamburg, yeah. Uh, only a new painter can painter can bring us back, yeah, probably. But we need somebody with the verbal skill and the like, like the leadership authority. It needs to be backed by something bigger than one man, right? So, uh, I don't know how to deal with this, but uh, well. I'm gonna spend more time on the on the comment section in a bit, but I wanted to just go through uh, here. Southern Europe question marks. I'm looking at my notes on my laptop, right? So I'm switching between the screen and my own uh, laptop to figure things out. Uh, I think in Southern Europe, the question is, will it fall to the African immigrants, to North Africans and uh, uh, the Central Africans? So Southern Europe. Southern Italy, Southern Spain, it has been invaded before by the Arabs and by the Moors and uh, also parts of Europe, Southeast Europe, like Greece and so on, Bulgaria, even Hungary has been invaded by the Ottoman Empire. You can imagine that Southern Europe is kind of lost. If things go worse for us, Southern Europe may simply be flooded with immigrants. That's where they're arriving, right? They're arriving in Italy. At some point, you'll notice that Northern Europe is less uh, densely populated than Southern Europe for a reason. It's colder, it's more expensive. The fuel, the heating costs are higher in the north, right? You're gonna have, do you see all these Central African black men? Do you see all of them wearing ski suits and going for a ski in Switzerland? I doubt it. It's just gonna be too cold for them. Some will do it, but many of them are just not gonna, gonna care about the cold uh, territory. So we're relatively better off in Northern Europe, but only in the countryside, right? the big cities will still flood. Uh, Southern Europe, I like I said, France is going to turn into a black African nation. France is gone. Uh, what about Spain and Italy and Portugal and Greece? Greece could be invaded by Turkey if they wanted to. They could go to war and take, Tur take Greece. Uh, I think uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, actually said so. He actually said that he wanted war on Greece. So they're thinking about it. These elites are all—they're all thinking about what can we capture. You know, the North Africans are dreaming of rebuilding their uh, Andalusian empire in the, in Spain. Spain could be lost again, as it has been lost before. And the same with Italy. Arabs are also Arabs once conquered Rome, and they're thinking of doing it again, right? So if you listen to their to the desires of our enemies, so to speak, they literally tell you what it is that they want to do. So. Strangely, then, in order for us, our type of people, to have a homeland, we will have to create something that is beneficial to ourselves, but still not pleasant enough for others to try to conquer it. That is a difficult balance of, of things here, right? So it will require perhaps some Spartan discipline and some Spartan aggression here. Uh, so I, I'm not sure about Southern Europe. Look, I'm just 
this is just a brainstorm at this point. I'm wondering about whether or not we can save Southern Europe or whether Southern Europe needs to be considered lost territory. You're going to lose it. It will be flooded with Arabs, Africans, and so on. You can't keep it. So I was, in my imagination, I was thinking, okay, but then what do we do with Southern Europe if it's going to be lost anyway? Well, you have a scorched earth tactic. You could literally burn all the agricultural fields so that no one can live there, no one can feed themselves there, and create a sort of barrier between Northern Europe and Africa. Right? But that's just my wild fantasy. And so uh, on the matter of European colonies, we have uh, Europe's have founded their colonies, the USA, most notably Canada, right, South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and several other territories here and there. In Latin America, technically, is, a, is colonial in origin, but I feel that Latin America is way more independent than, say, Africa. Uh, the African colonies are still very much under the rule of the IMF, for example, or so on. Uh, and I, I do think the USA is trying to keep Latin America under its thumb, right? But in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of North America, uh, I already spoke about this. But the question is, are white Americans even capable of sustaining themselves independently from Europe? Imagine if Europe would die out. What will become of the colonies? There's this theory that goes um, that colonies never outlive the mother source or the mother continent, so to speak. Historically speaking, whenever uh, whenever a nation that has colonies dies, the colonies die with it. For some reason, there's because Europe and the USA are deeply integrated economically. If Europe would die, I doubt that the USA in its present form could survive at all, because you need Europe as a as a market, so to speak, right? Uh, so we have all these colonial offshoots, you know. When I think about Australia and New Zealand, uh, someone from Australia explained to me, we always say that, oh, it, was, it used to be a penal colony, right? Where they sent criminals to Australia and, and, and they, they populated and settled Australia. What they don't tell you is that the British, the British uh, leadership actually began inventing all sorts of laws to make it more easily, easy to convict people of being a criminal and then to send them off to the colonies. I think I already mentioned this, that Australia and New Zealand appear to have been founded with the deliberate specific purpose to have something to surround China with. So you could so you could launch a war or a future attack from Australia. Basically, that's the whole reason why it exists, because um, before Australia was populated with white people, almost nobody wanted to go there. It's so far away from the white world in the West. Right. Uh, even today, you want to fly over, it can take you like 20 hours or more to get here, to get to Germany from uh, from Australia, for example. And so it's so far away, nobody really wanted to go there. They had to actually come up with reasons to get people to go there. So they sh ship their criminals there and they make up laws to get you convicted to go there. Uh, and it was all based, I think, to uh, to try to have to have a foundation to wage war against China, which is what is happening now, right? There's going to be a war over what is called the South Chinese Sea. Because if China dominates that sea, through which almost all of the global trade passes, uh, you know, the U.S. can't allow that to happen. The Western powers, they need to stay in control of that territory. Uh, and so uh, a naval battle will, and be, will be launched from Australia, really, uh, if you're ready for that. You know, I have sometimes attended um, uh, think tank events 
uh, they were organized by the Heritage Foundation, for example, or by uh, by others. Uh, and I noticed that in these these American think tanks, they never invite German thinkers or German geostrategists. They never invite French people. It's just the Anglosphere, the English speaking intelligentsia is allowed to come and speak. Uh, no one else is really invited. And so it's still it's very obvious that the Anglo-American world is in charge of the West. They tell the French and the Germans what to do. That's just how it is. And they're telling Poland what to do. Right. And they wish they could tell Russia what to do. And that's what it is all about. Uh, yeah. So on the matter of Europeans in Latin America, I can't really say that much about it. Uh, I think we are, you know, the Hispanic people, the Spanish people, the ones with the Gothic and the Germanic heritage and so on. Yeah, they belong to the European family. They just live in a very isolated territory far, far away, like Argentinians, for example, or lots of I think so, uh, in southern Brazil, you have like this massive uh, white uh, white population. But, you know, what are they supposed to do? Well, stake it out. You know, uh, Europe is far away. Right. And the USA is trying to keep you under their thumb. They don't want you to be that powerful, I suppose. But it might be something like a last refuge, like a place to flee to, a place to escape to. You know, if, if people bring resources, maybe they'll be welcome there. Right. And then you have the Afrikaners. I know a little bit about the Afrikaners. Uh, I read about the bitter anger movement of these men, religious resistors on their horses willing to fight to the end uh, to keep the, um, the British power out of their out of their territory. Uh, I think the Afrikaner warriors of those days, like 100 years ago, they were like uh, like two Spartans, right? Fighting the British Empire. And I think I see a lot of similarities with uh, the Afrikaners fighting the British Empire and uh, the Germans, you know, 2000 years ago fighting the Roman Empire. And maybe perhaps us today, us continental Europeans, fighting the American, the U.S. empire. And when I say fighting the U.S. empire, obviously, I don't mean fighting the white middle class over there. They would have to be on our side. It's the leadership, the Bolshevik Black Panther leadership of the U.S. That is through their media manipulation. They're such extremely deceptive people. They lie and they lie and they lie about lying. And it, it mangles people. They will want you to believe that black people build Stonehenge and soon they'll tell you that black people built the, built the Chinese wall. Right. And that black, the first, that Neil Armstrong was a <laughs> was a basketball player. I mean, I mean, at some point it's it's getting really crazy, but precisely because they control the media. This is the Bolshevik. They captured the media, the Black Panthers. They captured the media They're They're able to tell you, tell people what to believe. And if they start early enough, the toddlers, the, the children, the kindergartners, right? They're going to believe it. You tell three-year-olds, three-year-old black kids in London, you tell them that their ancestors built Stonehenge, they're going to believe it. And they're going, they're going to tell their children and their grandchildren about the time where we was, we was Kangs. You know, it's, it's just how it is. And so, why do we see so much mass immigration coming into Europe and North America from Africa and India? 
partly because our, lots of Africans speak English due to the colonial heritage. Lots of Indian people speak English, so that's why. That's why they're going to uh, Britain and uh, North America, Canada, right? Because of the language. Integrating people based on with different languages is the hardest thing to do. It, it takes at least five years for somebody to truly master a language, right? But only if you're motivated. And if you're not motivated, and if, you're, if you have a large enough group of your own kind of people, such as the Turkish people in the Netherlands or so, the Turkish people in Germany, they can often just speak Turkish to each other because they never really interact with Germans. You know, teachers, you have like white teachers in Austria in a classroom full of Muslim kids. And the, the teachers say, well, how are we supposed to integrate these children? We are their only connection to the, to the Austrian society. When they go home, they speak Turkish. When they go home, they go to the mosque. They go to, the, they get, they go to their supermarkets that are staffed by their own people, right? They never meet the European types. And so also, conversely, that means that many immigrants living in these enclaves in Europe already have the sensation that they are the new majority and that they are taking over since they hardly ever meet Europeans anyway, right? Europe is highly segregated. This myth of multiculturalism needs to die. There is no multiculturalism anywhere. There is no diversity anywhere. The only diversity you'll, uh, you'll ever really see in Europe is on the tram and the bus when you have a real mixed population on board, right? But it doesn't exist anywhere else. In, I used to live in Amsterdam. And when you go to Amsterdam, there are these places with cafes. It's all white. And I would not know if you ask me, where do you think that the, the Muslim people go out? Where do you think that the black Africans go out in, in Amsterdam? I wouldn't know because I've never been to such places. Right? I myself was part of this bubble, a European white bubble of people living among all these hundreds and hundreds of different nationalities and races and ethnicities and religions. But you just don't meet them apart from the public transportation. You just never meet them because you move in your own social circles. You have a friend who has a friend, but they're all, they're all your kind of people, right? You don't meet them. Once I did visit a, uh, a co-working space in Amsterdam that was led by Spanish people and Italian types, the Romance people, Spaniards, Italians, and Portuguese. And again, they live in Amsterdam, but they don't have Dutch friends. They live in their own closely knit little communities. And of course, the Dutch people, they hardly have non-Dutch friends either. So it works all ways. And that's why multiculturalism and diversity, it's just a myth. It does not exist. And I think I want to touch briefly on how we got here. How did we end up in this situation, you know? So uh sometime in what was it the 18th century or so germany and england kick-started the uh, industrial revolution and that was our biggest mistake we started producing such large populations of people younger people you know, held captive in big cities and so uh when you when you have too many people they become a herd and Herds of humans are ruled and governed differently than small communities of religious resistors. I need a sip. <clears throat> the, 
the Industrial Revolution not only gave us luxury goods and items and services and a better quality uh, infrastructure and better quality sewage, sewage and plumbing or whatever, it also gave us tremendously large booming populations that had to be held captive in cities, in cubicles, in studio apartments. I think the average studio apartment in London today is worse than a prison cell in Sweden. You literally have a nicer place if you go to jail in Sweden. That doesn't mean it's nice to be in jail in Sweden because you're still trapped, but it's probably nicer, nicer to wake up in your Swedish prison cell than to wake up in your London apartment next to your toilet, right? Ah. So, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about, uh, let, me, let me see. So, I mean, <clears throat> I've been talking for about one hour and 10 minutes or so. I try, I'll try to do two hours, but I notice that my voice is a bit cracking up. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not very used to doing long live speeches, but uh, let me, I do have some more things to talk about. So let me try that. Just reading my notes for a moment. Right. So what's, the, what is the real globalist plan? Well, I think everybody notices it. It's all about the um, suppression of masculinity or the repression of masculinity. They don't want boys to become men. They don't want human beings with a lot of testosterone. Because if you have a lot of testosterone, you have a male mentality. You are probably also somebody who wants to do things on his own and try things out and discover and explore, right? And form alliances with your friends, right? They don't want that behavior at all because that behavior is the foundation of nationalism. And they don't want it. Nationalism is a masculine idea. They don't want that. They want to have the global open society. The global open society. You know, somebody says, unless you're black. But I think uh, if you get to know the Central African men a bit better, you find out that they all of them are subordinate to their mothers. Whereas um, Northern European type men, they definitely, they separate from their mothers psychologically quite a lot better. So you might say that, say, the Central Africans. Also, keep in mind, the average Northwest European man is six feet tall. The average Central African black man is like five foot seven or so five foot six they're they're considerably smaller than us right they're three or four inches shorter or something like 15 or 12 centimeters shorter you know it's one-on-one -on -one, they should there shouldn't be any problems here um but i think the urbanization the mass humanity is a problem that is both the fault of the patriarchy because you had too many children where did you leave them you leave them in the cities the cities become dominant the cities have to educate all these people to behave properly or you might have too many conflicts right so the urban populations are very suppressed and repressed hence that's why urban leftists are leftists after all i think uncle kaczynski uncle ted wrote about the uh, over socialized leftist that is an urban person in the urban world you have so many rules so many more rules to live by so many more than even in the talmud or the bible you know, the Bible is an easy book compared to the laws necessary to run a big city like New York. It's just insane, right? Try to park your car in, in New York City on Wednesday evening. You have to move it because you have to move it for... Anyway, so I think one angle here for the future is, do you want to continue with mass humanity? Do you really want to have 10 billion people on this planet? Right. I don't think so. I think what we would what we would aim for is to have smaller populations of a higher quality of people rather than to have billions of billions of 
serfs and goons and servants and whatever. You don't want those anymore. You know what I what I imagine is there um, the new the rebirth or the birth of a new European native warrior caste, Spartans, Vikings, like men willing to fight and conquer. But there won't be as many of them. They will be smaller in number, but they will have more freedom and more more space to live, more territory, so to speak. And I think what the globalists are trying to do momentarily, I already spoke about China being a threat to them because China was the only big part of the world that they that the colonial Europeans couldn't subdue. They couldn't conquer it. They could destroy it. And they they actually infected China with um, with the opium trade. They made they made Chinese people addicted to opium on purpose to get them to trade their gold and their silver with the British. Um, the Chinese leadership today under Xi Jinping, they have literally said that they experienced that period from 1850 to 1950 AD as the century of humiliation where China lost every war it tried to wage with the West for 100 years straight. China is going to have revenge. The Chinese leadership, they are bent on revenge. It is, uh, it is quite understandable. Um, did you know, for example, that most of the fentanyl sold in the USA is actually grown in China? And so the Chinese leadership has the ability to either ban export of fentanyl or to kind of sheepishly allow the export. And so you see that already a large po population of Americans are addicted to fentanyl. It is a way for the Chinese to have revenge. It's the revenge for the opium trade. They're trying to, trying, yeah, trying to make Americans addicted to, uh, to, to uh, fentanyl uh, because you end up with a with a drugged out population that is no longer productive. They can't work, right? They're dying in the streets with wounds on their bodies. Have you seen these videos? There's somebody who makes videos of what's it called Skid Row in Philadelphia or something. You have all these these people are completely they're just zombies dying. They're zombies like hanging on, holding on to their limbs. It's just awful. And I think don't underestimate this kind of warfare, the chemical warfare, where you try to get your enemies, people addicted so that their economy collapses. All these things are very real. You got to keep that in mind that China doesn't wage wars the way we do, at least not yet. Um, the West is used to wage what I call penetrative war. We stab you with a spear or with knives and then we shoot you with bullets and with shrapnel from grenades and then bombs through your buildings, right? But the Chinese so far have been waging a psychological war. They use psychological methods, psychological poisoning, perhaps through fentanyl, a little bit of uh, physical poisoning as well. It's a very different strategy that we are not used to fighting because how do you shoot addictions? You can shoot addicts, but how do you shoot addictions coming to your people? How do you deal with that? Right? It's very hard. Uh, and so I think China has more clever ways of trying to subdue the United States, ways that our leaders are not thinking of and that will come as a surprise to us. Yeah. Like they may stage, they might stage, say, a certain medical uh, pandemic <laughs> and make, a, I really believe, I can't say too much, I can't say the word because I'll probably be banned here, but you know, Imagine you could make Western journalists believe there were a real pandemic. Imagine if you could make them believe that, and it would take them two years to figure out that it was all a scam. Imagine that, right? So, uh, 
the Western powers, their strategy is to try to isolate China because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know. They, they can't bomb it. You know, if nuclear weapons were real, I think they would bomb China. So we'll see if they're real or not. If they're not real, I bet they're not going to do it. Because, you know, if you reason this way, either psychopaths are in charge of our world and they, if they have nuclear weapons, they will use them. Or psychopaths rule the world, but nuclear weapons aren't real, so they can't use them. It's either or, you know. So, uh, okay, I'm coming near the end of my talk. I think I'll, because uh, my vo voice is a bit cracking up. So I wanted to end with some notes on my own personal ideology, and then I think I'll stay on a little bit longer, see if I can answer your questions finally. Um, so we... Um, we can't stop mass migration, that's my idea, but we can defend certain uh, ethnic enclaves within Europe and move to find new territory, especially in Northwestern Europe, Eurasia, uh, the woodlands. Uh, especially if the temperatures are rising, those lands, northern Scandinavia, for example, it will become habitable, the inland of Greenland, right? I've mentioned this before. We might find new pastoralist uh, pastures there, and so we can continue eating milk and meat. I think that's our focus. We're going to um, defend the territory where we can eat meat. Very simple, to put it most simply. Uh, a homeland that will be cut loose from globalism, a homeland we call our own where we can withstand the world if we have to, a place where we, where we can have our own nationalistic ethnic enclaves and we, where we literally can survive on our own autonomously not necessarily alone. We will have alliances and partnerships and trade routes and so on. But what we won't have is we will not submit to the rules-based order. We will free ourselves from the rules-based system that these matriarchal weirdos are trying to impose upon us, right? And so we would have to perhaps rekindle, reinvigorate our religious beliefs. Uh, some people tell me that, well, Christianity itself is so fragmented, it can't be used to uni unite people. But I, f I think a common belief in some God might help us out still so that we can uh, have a sense of a sense of unity, a sense of, a sense of social cohesion because we're lacking in it. You know, when Muslim people in Europe work together and fight together, we call it social cohesion. When white people do it, we call it racism. And that has to go. We have to simply accept we do have the right to stand up with our brothers, our Männerbünde, you know, our, our bands of brothers. We do have the right to have those and to fight with those and live with those, right? Uh, nobody should really be able to put an end to that. We need an... Um, a healthier balance between humanity and technology. Uh, I heard that in Israel, there are two camps. One camp wants to go down the path of superhumanity, and the other wants to go down the path of uh, transhumanity. So you have superhumanism and transhumanism. The difference is that superhumanism is more of the Aryan ideal of making you physically strong and so on. Uh, whereas transhumanism is to go beyond humanity and basically probably do away with the genders and make people gender neutral, but also make them something other than human, something weird, right? Something that they, you know, and I think there's a third, a third pathway here. 
if you have superhumanism and transhumanism, there's also simply being human. The realization that there is nothing really wrong with us. The only thing really wrong with us is that since the industrial age, we've given birth to way too many low quality people. And uh, the wars that are coming at us are going to solve that problem for us anyway. They, they, these people will perish. I told you, like, uh, if you want to have a homeland for our kind of people, for Europeans, off the bat, accept that 80% of your people are lost cause. You can't save them. They can't save us. We can only save ourselves. And if we would choose this path of staying human and not doing transhumanism, not superhumanism, but simply staying human in our human form, making us the best version of ourselves, having a homeland for our own where we can drink milk and eat meat, where we can have our flags and our anthems and our sports events and so on, basically focus on quality and health and sanity rather than on, I don't know, maximizing the maximizing the profits for the for the rich or something. That is simply not what we're going to do. We are going to be the anti-globalists and we're going to succeed that way. Uh, we free ourselves from the parasite and we will no longer play host to this or that party we are going to become such strongly independent people that doesn't mean alone we will basically dominate some other people here and there where we can right i think you know i'm trying to do the brainstorm here by myself but i suppose people in the comment section are also giving lots of good ideas now and i think we all the people who follow my videos if you actually like my content talk about it Talk about it with people you can trust. Talk about how, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? How are we going to get our homeland back? How are we going to have our own ethnic uh, enclaves, our own ethno, ethno states? Where are we going to build them? How are we going to build them? Who's going to build them? How do we defend ourselves, right? All these questions, we need to start thinking of them. We don't have that much time. You know, we have like five or 10 years left and then some, some kind of a solution needs to come out of these kind of talks and these debates, you know, in terms of funding, I wouldn't worry about funding. You need time. You need people willing to put in the time, people willing to even think about what we're going to do next. And like I said, 80% of people, are they going to stay loyal to the TV? They'll just listen to the TV and the radio and they'll do whatever, whatever the TV and radio tell them to do. It's a bit sad, you know. And so those of us unwilling to drown in the blackness, you know, we will have to find a new light. And... I'll give you the example of Israel. Israel was founded by 8,000 Zionists, right? So imagine what 80,000 of our most motivated people can do. We can have 10 such countries. We can arm ourselves to the teeth and cut loose from globalism. We will not only survive, but we will thrive. So uh, my aim was to keep speaking for two hours in total. I managed to get to about one, one, and a half, one hour and a half. Uh, I'm going to try to go through some of your comments in the comment section and then I'm going to wrap it up because uh, I noticed my voice is getting a little bit tired. Now, I didn't read June, but I read the, uh, I saw the original movie uh, and I played the video game, the original video game the, when I was young in the 90s or something. Uh, what do you think about June then? Yeah, we need to break free from the liberalism all over the world. This, these matriarchal people are just controlling us, you know. Yeah, Europe is mostly atheist. Uh, lots of people who say they're atheists also say that they do believe in something out there, but they don't know what. Uh, you know, uh, I think a large, large portions of uh, Western Germany are just very religious, really. 
southern, southern Germany. I used to live in Munich in Germany, and they were very, very religious. There are still plenty of our religious clubs and uncles, but the Netherlands, not so much, no. Uh, Gaddafi said Israel killed Kennedy because he wanted to inspect the Demona plant. Yeah, uh, that is a possibility. Uh, I think Kennedy was assassinated in overall because he was uh, quite uh, quite a liberal progressive. Actually, he also believed in uh, you know diversity and so much. They they killed him because he was going to harm the the profits of the military industrial complex. He didn't want any more wars in the Middle East and so on. Yeah. I think so, yeah. So uh, I think Europe is not atheistic. Western Europe, like France, the urban areas are atheistic, but a lot of people are still very religious in Europe. This is my idea. And uh, let me see. All right. All right, there's been a lot of comments going on here. I hope you were able to help each other out a little bit. Let's see if I can find some uh, something to respond to. Or otherwise, I'll, uh, multiculturalism is a disaster, yeah. Yeah, Europeans in former colonies never integrate either. Right, because why would you want to? These are not your people. They're just linguistically or culturally different. People just naturally, naturally don't do that, you know? I mean, look at the Moroccans and the Turkish people living in the Netherlands today. They they learn to speak Dutch, right? But beyond that, they are still Moroccan and Turkish people, right? So, it's a it's a strange condition, right? It's not it's not going to be a success. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, I'm gonna have to log off. And I'm going to try to do another live stream uh, next week, Thursday, same time, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, I hope next time I will get to the two-hour mark. I couldn't do it this time. Uh, uh, thanks for watching. And um, I will put this video, the replay, on YouTube as well, on, at The Great Johannes. You can also go to my website, www.jmk.info. I also have my link tree up somewhere on my TikTok profile. You'll find my link tree link where you see all my links. There you can find me. Uh, so uh, yeah, let's start this battle and let's let's do something about our future.